think that's why I have a fear of any sirens or anything like this until now. At nine years old, in the middle of Baghdad, Sarah's childhood effectively ends. It would be another eight years before she and her family found safety in the U.S. I'm Tiffany Jelke. This is In Their Own Voices, where we learn about refugees and put their stories in the heart of the data. On this episode, after we hear from Sarah, we will talk to national security expert Nick Harris of the Center for a New American Security. Nick will walk us through the U.S. security vetting process for refugees and discuss why admitting refugees is in the best interest of national security and prosperity. Afterward, we will join Sarah as she shops for groceries and describes the differences between Iraqi and American foods and her favorites of each. Now, here's Sarah's story. So, my name is Sarah Al-Kayali. I um, came to United States in 2010 with my family, uh, with my mom and uh, two sisters and one brother, so a family of five. Like most Iraqis, Sarah and her family lived a normal life in Baghdad. She went to school, her father worked for the Iraqi army, and she even enjoyed watching cartoons on the contraband satellite TV her father had gotten them through his army connections. But that life did not last. They give us like maybe 10 days in order to move and leave the house, even though if you don't settle, just get out, take your things and get, leave this area because this is not for you anymore. Sarah's family was being kicked out of their own home by a sectarian militia. And they didn't stop there. They also threatened the life of her six-year-old brother. A child, a baby, like still not in, in kindergarten, not even in first grade, you know. And they, they threatened to that, that they would kidnap him and kill him. And this is what it means to be a refugee, being forced from your home, where you have a right to live in peace and safety. Sarah talks about her life before the war. Oh, it's just the system is very weird. It's like from seven till one, and by one you should be at, at home eating your lunch, and then maybe do homework. And after that, you have the afternoon time just to spend it on like uh, maybe watching a movie or a TV show or listening to music or being on the internet, surfing the internet, and stuff like that. Some parts of their lives, though, they had to keep secret. Here's Sarah talking about the satellite TV her dad brought home. Because my, since my father was in the military, so we had it. <laughs> we had it. So it was, but you cannot speak in public saying that I have something that I could watch right. the news and I know what's going on like in the country neighbor us or like overseas or I could see cartoons that they cannot watch. It's interesting. Yes, it's very, so I... I was a child, but I was able to keep my mouth shut, (laughs) not to say anything about, yes, we have something like this, because my father was in the military. While Saddam Hussein's authoritarianism forced people to live parts of their lives secretly, there was a sense of genuine joy in the everyday lives of Iraqis. They sang, cooked, danced, played music and games. And Sarah remembers distinctly that before the war, most women did not wear the traditional hijab. It was a modern society that highly valued education and technology, which was making its way into their world. As an Iraqi community, they took it up pretty well. They were very open. They were very eager to see what's going on. And we wanted to know what's going on. We wanted to see the news. What's going on over there? What's going on there? Like, so it was very like something like very eye-opening. 
I think it's the, uh, at that time, uh, Saddam Hussein's administration or government, they were trying to control everything and what the media would have influence or anything. So they banned a lot of like, these kind of things, like these two major things, the satellite and and the phone, the cell phones, uh, just so they have a, a better control over the whole country. And um, also, uh, they even though they use it, they have it, it's not like banned from the country, just but only for them, you know. Even though she was only nine years old, Sarah remembers the war starting. You have to, because there's a specific area when it's like been targeted. So when they, someone lives in a different area, but you know this is very close to the like palaces of Saddam Hussein, they all going to get exploded by the missiles mm-hmm. from the uh, US airplanes uh, for the like military helicopters and everything. Mm-hmm. So you just have to get away from that area because if your house is very close to there, it, you could lose your half of the house, but you could lose your life also. At first, Iraqis were celebrating. They were happy to be free from Saddam Hussein. And, and after that, we had like a six <laughs> increase period, I guess, six months of very just people are happy. They're trying to process what's going on. There is no government. But reality soon set in. Her father had worked for the army. With no government, that was no longer an option. He was unemployed. He didn't know what's going to happen until the new government forms, until if they can allow them to come back again to the new army as like experienced people to train other soldiers or something like that. What kind of job he's going to have. During delicate times like these, when there's no government, law enforcement, or military, the perfect storm begins to brew. This is the vacuum, where sectarian militias begin to rise up and fill the void. And that's when we had other problems about the, like, I was, I call a civil war because it did happen as a civil mm-hmm. war after, like, the religion, they, two groups, they separated. Living with danger just became a normal part of everyday life for Sarah and her family. So hearing the bombs every single day, it was, to the, it got to the point it's very normal. As a young child, Sarah learns to fear the silence. The day that we don't hear anything, that's when we even fear more mm-hmm. because something even bigger and just worse. you wouldn't worse is going to happen. Yeah, that's how it was on a daily basis. Her family lived like this for years, moving around. They eventually were able to apply for refugee status based on some special circumstances. As long as you worked and served with the U.S. troops, uh, you will uh, qualify to be able to enroll in one of the programs, even though if you stayed there. So we stayed there. Even my mom's family, they went to Syria. At that time, it was a flourishing country. There was nothing wrong with it. So they went, they lived there, I think, for three months, and then came back after the war ended. And um, so they went and they came back, and you just stay there, and then you apply, and then you wait for your interviews, you wait for, like, uh, the security, um, clearness, and everything. And uh, for them, it took two years. And for us, it also took two years until we were able to approve and were issued the refugee status to be able to come to the U.S. We'll get back to Sarah's story in a little while. But first, let's talk about the security vetting process, which Sarah's family still had to go through, even though they had special circumstances. The following is the process for refugee resettlement security screening According to the White House's website, November 20th, 2015, some of these procedures have been updated since. However, these procedures are already very stringent. 
in order for a refugee to gain entry into the United States, the first step is that they apply to the UNHCR, the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. UNHCR then collects identifying documents and performs initial assessments, which include collecting biodata like name, address, birthday, place of birth, etc. They also collect iris scans for Syrians and other refugee populations in the Middle East. Then they interview the applicant to confirm refugee status and make sure they meet the requirements based on a well-founded fear. Only applicants who are strong candidates for resettlement ever move forward. This means that less than 1% of the global refugee population ever proceed past step one. For step two, UNHCR hands the file over to a federally funded resettlement support center or an RSC. The RSC collects identifying documents creates an applicant file, and compiles information to conduct biographic security checks. If an applicant does not have in their possession identifying documents, they are not accepted for resettlement. Refugees are subject to the highest level of security checks of any category of traveler to the United States. In step three, biographic security checks start with enhanced interagency security checks. U.S. security agencies screen the candidate these agencies include the National Counterterrorism Center and Intelligence Community, the FBI, Department of Homeland Security, and the State Department, among others. The screening looks for indicators such as information that the individual is a security risk, connections to known bad actors, and outstanding warrants and immigration or criminal violations. Department of Homeland Security conducts an enhanced review of Syrian cases, which may be referred to United States Custom and Immigration Services, Fraud Detection, and National Security Directorate for review. Research that is used by the interviewing officer informs lines of question related to the applicant's eligibility and credibility. This process is repeated anytime new information is provided, such as a previously used name or a different phone number. Otherwise, the process continues. In step four, the Department of Homeland Security and the United States Custom and Immigration Services begins their interview process. Interviews are conducted by USCIS officers who are specially trained for these interviews. Fingerprints are collected and submitted, which is called a biometric check. Re-interviews can be conducted if fingerprint results or new information raises questions. If new biographic information is identified by USCIS at an interview, Additional security checks on the information are conducted. USCIS may place a case on hold to do additional research or investigation. Otherwise, the process continues to step five. During step five, the applicant's fingerprints are taken by US government employees. These fingerprints are then screened against the FBI's biometric database and the Department of Homeland Security's biometric database which contains a watch list of information and previous immigration encounters in the United States and overseas. The fingerprints are then screened against the U.S. Department of Defense biometric database, which includes fingerprint records captured in Iraq and other locations. If not already halted at this point, any cases with security concerns end here. Otherwise, the process continues. If there is any doubt about whether an applicant poses a security risk, they will not be admitted. Throughout the entire process, pending applications continue to be checked 
against terrorist databases to ensure that new relevant terrorism information has not come to light. If a match is found, that case is paused for further review. Another thing to remember during this entire process is that as Gazwan Abdullah shared in our first episode, if these processes are not completed within an 18 month period, all of them have to start again through all the different agencies and databases. This is to ensure that each check in the databases for the agencies are against the most recent data halls that have been entered into these databases. Step six is a medical screening. This is the endpoint for cases that are denied due to medical reasons. Refugees may be provided medical treatment for communicable diseases such as tuberculosis. Step seven is a cultural orientation an assignment to domestic resettlement locations across the United States. Applicants complete their cultural orientation classes and then an assessment is made by a U.S.-based non-governmental organization to determine the best resettlement location for the candidate. Considerations include family members and candidates with family in a certain area that may be placed in that same area. And health, a candidate with asthma, for instance, may be matched to certain regions that are asthma friendly. A location is then chosen based on all of this information. Applicants who continue to raise no red flags move on to step eight. In step eight, the International Organization for Migration books travel for refugees that are approved to resettle to the United States. Prior to entry into the United States, these applicants are subject to a screening from the U.S. Customs and Border Protection's National Targeting Center passenger and they're subject to the Transportation Security Administration's Secure Flight Program check. This is the endpoint for some applicants. Applicants who have no flags continue to the final step. Step nine is the final step. It's U.S. arrival. All refugees are required to apply for a green card within a year of their arrival to the United States, which then triggers another set of security procedures within the U.S. government. Refugees are woven into the rich fabric of American society. They are becoming our newest citizens at this point, like Gazwan and Sarah and our future refugee guests. They're part of our proud American culture and heritage. Nicholas Harris is an international expert on national security in the Middle East, specifically Syria, Lebanon, and Jordan, as well as Turkey and the Gulf. He has provided expert analysis for the National Intelligence Council, National Security Council, U.S. Central Command, U.S. Special Operations Command, the U.S. State Department's Policy Planning Staff, and U.S. Naval War College, Center for Irregular Warfare and Armed Groups. He is also a frequent commentator to the national and international media, appearing on shows such as National Public Radio, Public Radio International, the BBC World Service, CBS Nightly News, Fox News, Al Jazeera, and more. He is often quoted in the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, CNN.com, the Associated Press, the Christian Science Monitor, Newsweek, USA Today, Voice of America, U.S. News and World Report, Foreign Policy, and many others. Nicholas works as a fellow at the Center for a New American Security, specializing in the Middle East Security Program. He is the author of From the Bottom Up, a strategy for U.S. military support for Syria's armed opposition, and has co-authored and authored numerous scholarly articles. We were fortunate enough to secure an interview with Nicholas, who shared many of his thoughts on the security vetting of refugees. Here he is answering the question, 
are refugees a national security threat to the U.S.? The data that we do have indicates that when it comes to refugees and asylum seekers, the threat to the U.S. homeland is, is quite low. And that actually the greatest risk to the U.S. are in fact from foreign nationals that are part of the visa waiver system. My understanding there are 34 countries, mostly in Europe, that are part of the visa waiver system, which means they go through a very um, short screen-in process um, before they, they get their tourist visa, for, in particular, to come to the United States. And so this, this threat is more along the lines of uh, people, let's say, from Europe, people from Europe that grew up either in disenfranchised communities in Europe of, of, older, of older waves of migration. Um, and uh, we saw that with the attacks in France, and we saw that with the attacks in Belgium, that it's actually much more effective for, say, al-Qaeda or ISIS to be able to have an operative that was born and raised in a country in Europe who has the passport, has nationality, who, who understands the system and the language than it is to have a refugee or an asylum seeker. Because for example, more often than not, let's say a, uh, a, a refugee boat arrives in Italy, they're gonna be detained and they're gonna be held in a, in a camp more often than not. They're gonna be separated as much as possible from the quote-unquote mainland of Europe. And there is where they're trying to institute more sort of aggressive vet-in processes. But because of the, the number of people and sort of the, local, the resources that are available to authorities in Southern Europe, it becomes more of a challenge. But for the U.S., our threat vector is more likely to come from sort of self-radicalized people in the United States that are born Americans, they're U.S. citizens, they speak American, quote-unquote, English. You know, they're, they're members of the community. Um, or in a, in a much more remote sense, um, people from in particular Europe that may have become radicalized there and have tried to carry out attacks in the U.S. But that is such a, you know, the studies that we've done, the analysis that we have from the U.S. Inter, to the interagency level, from all of the, the assessments you see, Really, the, the challenge when it comes to refugee communities is actually not so much U.S. national security, but, say, refugee communities. The famous example, of course, is the Somali refugee community in the upper Midwest, in Minnesota, where people who were born in the U.S. or came at a very early age um, radicalized and then wanted to go wage jihad overseas. Uh, thus far in the U.S., we've been far, we've been far more fortunate that we don't have restive uh, We don't tend to have restive communities that feel so disenfranchised that they want to carry out attacks in the United States. Our experience has been a very, very small number of people from sort of first-generation backgrounds may have decided to go wage war in their homeland, not in the United States. And you know, part of part of that success is in the U.S. We have to give ourselves some credit here. You know, we have a very strong federal to, to state to local process infusion centers that are in place. We have a whole program that, in fact, uh, some of the European nations are trying to emulate, which is what we call community outreach and engagement. Uh, we try to, as much as possible, you know, we've learned since September 11, 2001, about how not to go about uh, interacting with members of communities that we think may be at risk of having members of their community radicalized and carry out attacks how not to engage with them, 
how Chu engaged with them. And you know what the core, actually, at the end of the day, you know what the core lesson of that whole process has been? Simple, simple standards of American legal doctrine, which is innocent until proven guilty. Put them through their suspicion, begin to build the case, interact with members of the community, doing it in a very careful approach. And then if there's cause for concern, that's when you act. And I think this is, it's tough here in the U.S. What we want to know is what happens over there in the Middle East is going to get someone to radicalize here and carry out attacks in our home community. And the answer to that is the evidence that we have so far is no. Now, the, I think that we do have a bet. We have a, a longer term challenge in that second we talked about in the region in that, uh, for example, Lebanon, where one in every four people in Lebanon is a refugee or in Jordan, where something like one in every eight people is a refugee or in Turkey, which has three million refugees. It is intensive. It is invasive and it's done abroad. And that's the key distinction. There are sort of different layers to the challenge. I would say, you know, though there is always, you know, we have to, we have to sort of recognize that in the post-September 11, 2001 uh, era, and we're still in that era, and uh, the counter-ISIS campaign is sort of the latest phase in that era, there's been a tremendous focus on U.S. homeland security, U.S. national security. How can American agencies at all levels, federal, state, and local, uh, become better prepared to prevent sort of attacks to, uh, inside the homeland? That's one layer. That layer is what impacted uh, political debate after the attacks in Paris in November 2015, the Bataclan attacks. Um, it also, in, in, in that layer, impacted, uh, impacts our presidential campaigns. Uh, the, only, the, the one issue that resonated in terms of U.S. policy towards the Middle East uh, in the, the, the last election was, in fact, ISIS and what to do about ISIS, which takes us to our sort of second, second sort of layer, which is over there in the region, in the Middle East, in the North Africa, in Southeast Asia, and in Europe. And when we think about this layer of the challenge, it really has to do with the stability of core U.S. partners in the Middle East, such as Jordan, such as Lebanon, such as Turkey, uh, such as Saudi Arabia uh, and Iraq, and then also our, our, our allies in Europe. And this is where it becomes very interesting because those two layers of this, of, of this, uh, of this challenge that has emerged since September 11, 2001, oftentimes gets, get sort of woven together in our, our sort of national discourse. But in fact, uh, because of vetting procedures that the U.S. has implemented since the September 11, 2001 attacks, the threat of domestic attacks from refugees and asylum seekers is far lower than the threat of population movements destabilizing our core allies and partners in the region, in the Middle East, in Europe, and North Africa. When it comes to the layer that's, that's closest and most dear to, to the everyday security of Americans, we have very good procedures, the best procedures in the world, to the point where Europe is trying to adopt some of our procedures when it comes to admitting refugees. That second layer of how do, you, how do you best support our partners abroad 
so that these population flows don't undermine their security and their ability to, pro to provide safe haven uh, for the most vulnerable. How do you solve that challenge? Nicholas and I also discussed security vetting improvements that have been made since 9-11. I mean, there have been tremendous improvements. Um, since September 11, 2001, there has been a real concerted effort across what we call the interagency, across government um, agencies at the federal level and also at the state and local level to really implement um, the program that's been outlined by the U.S. Refugee Admissions Program, which is essentially that coordinating effort from the, uh, to vet all refugees um, that are granted admissions to the United States. And so I think it's important for us to sort of walk through how that happens. Nicholas elaborates on the security vetting steps we heard earlier and describes what they look like in practice. This involves two layers of defense. First, the overseas vetting by our partners and UNHCR that eliminates 99% of prospective refugees. And then the second layer is the U.S. vetting process. The United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, UNHCR, um, only, 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 um, really tries to resettle 1% of the world's 21 million refugees. So we have to start with that, that the first layer of defense is actually by our international organization partners. No refugee that enters the United States um, comes just, they don't just show up at the doors of an embassy or consulate. You know, they just don't say, hey, I want to come in. First, they have, first they have to be, uh, they have to be um, sort of, flagged by UNHCR, or in, in some instances, they'll be flagged directly by the embassy or consulate, or a, a, a vetted and approved local uh, implementing organization that works with the U.S. government. That's step one. So when you think of it in that context, there is no refugee that comes to the U.S. that hasn't been first uh, recommended overseas in the country where they're seeking, when the country where they have refuge. The second layer is an intense process that lasts, you know, upwards of two or more years. And that process essentially is that when the U.S. Uh, State Department said, okay, UNHCR or okay consulate or okay local embassy, we agree that this person or this family, they deserve consideration to be settled in the United States. Then a whole process begins. And that process starts in the countries uh, of, of refuge. And for Syrians and Iraqis in particular, there's an even added layer that we'll get to. So the Department of, the Department of State and the Department of Homeland Security, uh, they begin a, a process of working with vetted and approved U.S. contracting agencies in these countries and say Jordan or say Lebanon or say Turkey for example, when it comes to Syrians or Iraqis, to figure out who are these people. You know, if there's a family, they interview every family member separately. They collect as much data as they can up front. You know, social media, social media uh, profiles, um, education profiles, any, uh, any official documents. They conduct interviews with uh, organizations, whether international or local, that have been providing services these refugees. They do multiple interviews, and they put all of this into a database that's shared across interagency, across the U.S. Refugee Admissions Program, that then has the ability to tap into classified information, 
to class to tap into network analysis that's done by, say, CIA or the National Counterterrorism Center or the Department of Defense to find out anything, anything at all that could flag family member um, that wants to be resettled in the U.S. as, as a refugee. And what so there's just... Nicholas explains how intensive the security vetting process is on refugees. This process attempts to trip the applicant up along every step of the way. We have trained U.S. national security professionals, whether from the Department of State, Department of Homeland Security, in some instances, Department of Defense, or uh, even in some more higher, um, sort of higher profile type refugees. You'd also have the intelligence community weigh in. These, there are, there's a whole layer of interviews that happen. And there, is, there, are, there are attempts to try to find holes in the stories of refugees, you know, to find out what were their connections, who were they tapped into. And before uh, refugees, if a refugee or a family of refugees have, have made it to the last layer of the process before they are actually said, okay, welcome to the United States. We want you to come into our country. They're given another final vet-in interview that really try and that will at times bring in sort of subject matter experts. So, for example, if a refugee comes from, uh, let's say, Damascus in Syria, and they left the Civil War, they left Syria, let's say, a couple years after the Civil War began, 2013, 2014. Now they're resident in Turkey. They've been resident in a major southern Turkey city, say, Gaziantep. And they've been volunteering at a local Syrian-run Turkish government-approved NGO that provides, let's say, inside of Syria. That person, even if they are a woman head of household whose husband was killed in the civil war or who has been separated, uh, from members of her family, they are then going to go and say, okay, this organization, where does it operate? Huh? It operates in an area of the country that we know there might be uh, Al-Qaeda-aligned rebel groups. Or you say, you know, it gets down to the district level. You say you come from this district of the city. Well, we have good, uh, we know, they don't say we have good, we, we know XYZ organization that is tied to Al-Qaeda or another militant group is there. How do we know that you haven't been supporting them, that the, the services that you provide haven't materially supported them? How do we know that when you come to the United States and try to use that opportunity and then the, the process that would fast-track you to become a legal permanent resident, basically all the rights of a U.S. citizen except the right to vote for president, green card holder, that you're not going to use that against the United States or its partners? One of the recent concerns has been whether or not refugees have documents when we vet them, and whether or not those documents are truly verifiable. More often, I would say the vast majority of cases, from what I have seen and what I have, what I have, what I have been sort of read into, have some form of documentation that can then begin a, a larger process of investigation. And to be quite frank, if a if a if an individual or a member of a family does not have enough verifiable information, they're not in the, they're not, they're kicked out of the process. Right. It really needs to be emphasized. Uh, You know, families, the U.S. does not have to admit families. There are several cases, for example, Syrians or Iraqi refugees, um, and in, and in, and in Somali refugees as well, you hear this as well. 
that they don't have they the U.S. does family. Now the hope is to admit an entire family, but there are instances where one member or two members of the family will be admitted to the U.S. if they're admitted, and the rest will either stay or they will go to Europe because the U.S. just doesn't have enough verifiable information about that person. The point that really needs to carry through here is that when it comes to refugees, and I know, and and this is something that really is sort of a cold slap of reality. When it comes from when it comes to refugees, how the U.S. vets potential uh, uh, refugees to be resettled, the assumption is uh, guilty until proven innocent. Yeah. That they, this, these people that are brought to U.S. attention are, are potentially threats, and then they need to be they need to be cleared. And there's mm-hmm. a whole system of interviews that are conducted. It's not just a database. It's not just we trust the word of you know, some local contractor in Turkey or in Jordan or in Syria, I mean, in Lebanon. There are some important key distinctions and nuance that Nicholas wanted to make sure we understood. First, he explained how terrorism arises in these countries in the first place. I will, I will focus this more in the context that we talk about when it comes to refugees, yeah. asylum seekers, and we talk about that confluence with transnational terrorist organizations. Um, I would say that, again, going back to the layers of concern, the layer of concern has to do with two. One is when you have actual frontline states in the Middle East and North Africa, countries like Tunisia, uh, countries such as Turkey, Jordan, Lebanon. These countries on the main, to a lesser extent Turkey, have weak economies. Uh, they have their own internal uh, issues. Um, they have risk of being destabilized, which offers further opportunities for groups like ISIS and al-Qaeda to try to take root because of population dissatisfaction. Um, that's the first layer. The second layer, which impacts Europe more, is sort of the challenge of how do you discern when you have hundreds of people at a time coming in a boat and they just arrive on your shore or even thousands of people over the course of several months how do you know who is who, so to speak? How do you know that someone's story is true? How do you know that that person from Sudan isn't in fact a member of an Al-Qaeda organization? Or how do you know that that Libyan isn't, wasn't part of a group that committed human rights atrocity? It's very difficult, and it's, very, it's sort of very difficult to discern, which is why you see certain states in Europe, such as France, President Macron, for example, this summer um, sort of unveiled a new policy, and the policy was strengthen national borders. This is one of the impacts of the, 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 the flow of the population flow that's affecting Europe. So strengthen the national borders, national border security, to begin a, a much more invasive process of sort of acculturating um, uh, migrants in, in, in France uh, to to also begin to implement a more U.S. system, whereas the French will accept, only accept asylum seekers and refugees for resettlement if they've been, if they've been vetted abroad in their country of origin or the nearest country in the region where they come from where they sought refuge. In order to really try to adopt sort of the U.S. system of, hey, you want to come and live in our country the rest of your life? want to be a member of our society, but we need to know who you are over there. Um, that's one, that's the one example of how 
a, a wealthier, more powerful European impact that policy. In other countries with difficult uh, in Europe, in Central Europe, or even in Northern Europe, is a concern that uh, mass population flow from regions of the world where there are different cultures. And oftentimes it comes across in context of sort of religion or Muslim versus Christian or Middle Eastern versus Europe. How do you actually integrate them? How do they not become sort of a drain on the local, um, those, the local society and sort of the state welfare services that make Europe very attractive? And the fact of the matter is, um, uh, the fact of the matter is, is that certain countries such as Germany um, and uh, Sweden have taken on the, the bulk of asylum seekers from the Middle East, particularly mm -hmm. Syrians and Iraqis that want to enter Europe because they have better social welfare systems. They have better systems in place from day one uh, for people that are the people that are trying to migrate there to, to sort of start a new life and to start over. And so this is where it becomes very complicated. Uh, very quickly. And so what we see, and this is important for sort of U.S. listeners, is that the system that we put in place since September uh, 11th, 2001, is actually a model that other countries want to, to build on. Mm -hmm. And it is, it is so discerning and so discriminatory, and it's done over there, quote-unquote, that it, it, the, the perceived security risks are so low that other countries want to adopt it. Nicholas explains why refugees are a different ballgame from mixed migration and helps us understand the difference between mixed migration and refugees and asylum seekers. Is when we talk about refugees, it's a different ballgame. Mm -hmm. there's, there's a different goal line. When we talk about refugees, we need to separate refugees from the, what we, again, the mixed mixed population migration flow. I think the figures released were in the first seven months, 2017, maybe almost 150, uh, almost a little bit over 100,000, uh, what we would call clandestine immigrants have tried to enter the U.S. through the southern states. Most mm -hmm. of those people are doing it for better opportunity, economic reasons. That's different from refugees because refugees actually, you know, refugee is written into U.S. law that a refugee is defined as someone that has a reasonable fear of persecution or to be killed because of their identity, their nationality, their race, religion, sexual orientation. Um, and that's a different, and it's a different process with refugees. When we talk about refugees, say, from Congo, Democratic Republic of the Congo, or from mm -hmm. Afghanistan, or from Somalia, or from Eritrea, or from, uh, from Syria, or from Iraq, it's a different process that they go through much more discriminatory. It happens, quote-unquote, over there. And, you know, the numbers are much smaller. When we're talking about whether or not we're going to be in a, a country that accepts immigrants and refugees, Nicholas is saying that it's really important to separate refugees and asylum seekers from the other migration debates. We, and in Europe, we are in a, in a, in a, in a real sort of introspective state, uh, stage trying to wonder fundamentally know, what our own identities are and what we want for our future. And it, this issue becomes, this issue of migration flows becomes magnified, particularly when the economic aspect of it gets woven in. You know, this idea of they take our jobs, or, they, or in the European case, they're draining our tax dollars. Why should I pay high taxes for a social welfare system that's collapsing and doesn't give me the services that I'm accustomed to in better days? And those are much more difficult to answer. 
because that's where a con- that's where identity, national identity, and in some cases local identity, gets woven into broader issues of macroeconomic stability and what it means to be what it means to be welcoming. Nicholas closed his interview with us by framing some key perspectives to our concerns about refugees in some powerful ways. Turkey has almost as many Syrian refugees as the number of refugees that have been admitted to the United States over three decades. That's something very important to keep in mind. Over three decades that the U.S. has had its modern sort of refugee admission process, we have had the same number of refugees as Turkey has had in the half decade of the Syrian civil war. Just Turkey. And so this, I think there's a much more difficult challenge when we speak about sort of our key partner states in the region and how they will be able to have a resident population of refugees that may not be able to go back home. The Syrian civil war is still ongoing. There's still mass population inflows from Iraq. Uh, there, are, there are challenges for countries like Jordan and Lebanon and Turkey of, okay, what next? Lebanon, for example, a country I have a lot of experience in, is, is, is very challenged by a, the, the prospect of a, 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 another sort of, um, uh, sort of large-scale refugee community that settles in the country and isn't properly integrated, as was happened with the Palestinian refugees primarily from 1948 war between Arab states and Israel. And so in Jordan, we see it already, the economic consequences of uh, the Syrian civil war in terms of just the already bad situation economically and for opportunities for young Jordanians becomes magnified when you include, you know, Syrians, for for example, and to a lesser extent now Iraqis who, you know, they need to survive and who who want to live in the population. They don't want to live in refugee camps. They don't want to have to go through the UNHCR process. And so there's this, there's this, there's this challenge of the stability of our regional partners. In 2016, the figures are something around a little bit over 7,000 refugees were settled, let's say, in Texas, of a population of over 20 million people. Right. 7,000 in a population of over 25, 20 million people in your great state that's the size of many nations. Right. So and this is something that I am always introspective on. You know, I'm in the national security field. I'm in the field of research in national security. In the post-September 11, 2001 context, we often magnify the threat from organizations like al-Qaeda and ISIS to a degree that's totally out of proportion with their actual threat to us. Again, people have to understand, we're a country of 320 million people and growing spread over a continent. So the... The size that we, just the scale of our nation, of our, our communities that come that are part of our nation, is such that you know, in our own tradition of being welcoming to outsiders, of being a nation of immigrants, of being a nation that tends to do the right thing when it comes down to it, really come, runs up against this fear that hasn't been inspired. And I know one of the elements that I try to incorporate in my briefings or in my own work you know, is to put proper perspective and to really just say, look, you know, you know, we have, we can't, you know, we can't, we can't live as in, we can't live as a giant afraid of an issue that is, we can't live as a giant nation afraid of such a small threat. And really the, the biggest threat to our country is how we react, how we 
uh, how we, I, we, we may not come together. Sarah's family was one of the 1% who make it through the rigorous international and U.S. security vetting process that Nicholas just described. Here's what it felt like for Sarah to finally arrive to safety in the U.S. It was dark already, so I was so, so eager to see the sunlight and the day. Anything I was thinking about, I just want to see the light, the daylight, so I could see like how the tree looks like, how the tree looks like, like things like that, like how it looks like, you know? Curious. Yeah, it's very curious to see like that very green plants here because over there, um, in, after war, there was no like a city taking care of those parks or anything like this. And my uncle received us at the airport uh, with my aunt and they welcomed us and we were like, hello, hello, they were so happy. Um, the animals, you could see a rabbit, you could see like a uh, scroll, all those things. We, everywhere. Yes, everywhere and over there is not, you cannot see those. So that was like very interesting to see and very fun to see. Oh my God. Sarah invited me to join her as she shopped for groceries at Whole Foods and pointed out favorites she has acquired in the U.S. Often foods with some similarity to back home in Iraq. Let me tell you about my favorite discovery of all of here in the States. So, from what I come, of course, olives is a big thing. However, this Kalamata olives is not from the Middle East, for sure, but, uh, like, olives over there is, uh, like, we the, the best olives over there is from Lebanon, the one that you get from Lebanon or Syria or Jordan, because there's a lot of trees there. It just grows naturally with amazing olives. Here, though, uh, this one, I don't know specifically what it is from. It's Greek. Greek. Okay. Very close, I guess. Close enough. <laughs> close enough. So I love those. Yeah. Got a get. Kalamata. Yes. Yeah, that's really good. Here are the first few things that Sarah put in her cart. Dolmas or grape leaves, stuffed grape leaves. Carrots. You can hold it. And avocado. And uh, banana. So banana you could... But Sarah really revealed her new Americanism when I asked her her favorite food. What's your favorite American food? Oh, uh, probably pizza. However, I have a vegan pizza that I eat from here. It's the best pizza I've ever ate. No cheese. And it's vegan. And it's vegan and no meat. And no cheese and no egg and nothing because I don't like eggs. I don't like cheese. Okay, vegan pizza? Hmm, maybe American, maybe not, but still. Who doesn't like a good pizza where they get to pick the toppings? My son asked Sarah what her favorite food was here in the U.S. that wasn't available in Iraq. What's your favorite That was never available. Over there? Um, I would say pizza, just because over there we don't have the fast food of the pizza mm. kind of places. And if you, in order to know, like your mom has to learn it and then make it. Make because, it at home. Yeah, because it's not like an Iraqi or Arabic traditional dish. And there were no stores that. It, there came was in. no store. Right now there is a lot, but I'm talking about like seven years ago. Yeah. There was not like that plenty of. Like if you want to eat pizza, you probably have to go like to like maybe um, countries around Iraq, mm. you know? Like travel to go to Jordan to eat some pizza. Will is an adventurous conversationalist. And the next conversation was really interesting. It somehow went from Will and Sarah talking about war to, of all things, amusement parks. So you went through the war for seven years? No, eight years. Yes. Before yes. she even got Before to Before I got to here. Mm -hmm. Yes, it was. 
That was hard. And it was different, like the war, and after that, there was not that war. There was like kind of a civil war, like between people among themselves. They just kill each other for yeah, a lot. Well, well, to them there is a reason, but it's for real, no reason. Yeah, just exactly. killing. Yeah, unfortunately, and yeah, I lived through all this. So kind of my, I would say my child, late childhood, and beginning By the time of you my teenage. Yes, his age. I kind of I don't. I still miss it. I want to go like for sixty flags or something like this because I wasn't able to go over there because it was so bad. Yeah. And so that part of my childhood is kind of was gone, unfortunately. Yeah. Just. Have you been to Six Flags yet? Uh, three times only. Yay. Three times only because. That's more than me. <laughs> yeah. So. No, I love the horse and the cops. That's what I when I go to see, I you I would. That's what I go and ride. Not the big ones. The I'm never gonna do in life unless I get paid a million dollars. Is going to loop de loop. I've never <laughs> done that, but probably I should just Google it and see what is that. And it's then... where it goes in the loop, and then it. Oh, and okay. Then when you flip, it's it like centrifugal force. Okay, okay. Oh no. Yeah, this is no. I wouldn't do it either. <laughs> I wouldn't. Even if they would give me like a million dollars, I wouldn't. Today, Sarah works at a refugee resettlement agency as an immigration legal assistant, and she goes to school at University of Texas, Dallas. Her next goal is to become a U.S. immigration attorney, but she has finally achieved the most precious goal just recently. So now I'm a former refugee and a U.S. citizen as of uh, last year. My 13-year-old son, Will, who you heard talking to Sarah earlier, wanted to go with me when we went to Whole Foods to shop. So, of course, I let him come, and I thought this was a great learning opportunity. I asked him afterward what he thought. Here's what he had to say. I think it was really cool to, like, learn about um, her and her experience in Iraq as we went, and, like, the foods that she never got to eat before, and, like, her, like, opinion on the foods from where she had been was just really fascinating. Yeah, it was really interesting different perspectives, huh? Mm-hmm. We learn, though, from different perspectives. They're not scary, are they? Mm-mm. And that pizza from Whole Foods is really good, huh? Mm-hmm. <laughs> this program is made possible by the generous support of Southern Methodist University's Embry Human Rights Program. Now please enjoy the musical stylings of Gazwan Abdullah, our first guest from episode one, as he plays us out with some Iraqi music. Thank you.